Mediated Conversation on SAFM. 26 minutes to 9. Good morning. Over the last few weeks, there have been several comments about the, diff- about the difficult times that we live in and apartheid. Ten days ago, the Minister of Social Development, Lindy Wizulu, said apartheid was one of the reasons so many people died in the fire in the centre of Joburg. The Minister of Transport, Sindasiwa Chakunga, said last week the apartheid government was responsible for the problems on our railways because it had stopped investing so much money in railways towards the end of its time in power. Last weekend, President Sir Ramaphosa said at an ANC event that his party should be judged on how life has changed in the last 30 years and not just in the last five years. And as I'm sure you've heard here on SAFM Sunrise, from time to time, we receive phone calls from black people who claim life was better during apartheid, or that some parts of life were better. When you consider how bad apartheid was and the huge impact it had on people in their lives, why would someone say this? So then, how do we assess what is the result of apartheid and what is the result of problems created during our democracy? How do we assess politicians when they point to apartheid as being responsible for the problems we face? While the party did create our racialized inequality, but our democratic government has also made mistakes. It's a big subject. First this morning, you'll hear from Angelo Fick, Director of Research at the OWL Socioeconomic Research Institute. And then from Professor Nur Niftahadin, who is the NRF South African Research Chair in Local Histories, Present Realities, and Head of the History Workshop at Fitz University. We start then with Angelo Fick. Angelo, good morning and thank you for your time. Good morning to you, Stephen, and to your listeners. It's a big topic. It's obviously a contentious topic. Why do some people proclaim in public that they believe some parts of their life were better during apartheid than they are now? I think memory is a very, very complicated thing. And we often remember the past through the terms of the present. And sometimes our unhappiness with the present makes us forget some of the uh, more horrific parts of the past. And I think in South Africa, there is so much horror in the past that we often foreground um, the horrors of the present with what we remember as the better things of the past um, in order to explain to ourselves why it is we're in the difficult situation. So either we blame the past for the present or we blame the present by saying it is even worse than the past was. And South Africans are not unique in this sense, but I think it is important for us to remember that present unhappiness must be addressed by present political conditions and not just by either harking to the past as having been worse than it was or by the past having been better than we remember it or in the way that we remember it. Um, One thinks of L.P. Hartney who famously said, the past is a foreign country and they do things differently there. So even the past we ourselves lived through can often be misremembered um, from the present when we compare the past and the present. Is that a sort of another way of saying we choose to remember some things and to forget other things? Absolutely. So, um, and it's often not even a conscious choice. Some of the horrors of what happened on apartheid are often deleted um, and not seen as the price paid for what we remember as the better. So a facile, very superficial example would be people who say, well, I remember the vergers on the sides of roads, the grass used to be cut um, and streets used to be neat. And the inner city of Johannesburg was a place that you could go to. Or the inner city of Durban was a place you could walk in, um, in particular ways. But they forget that that came at the cost of immense and violent repression of a massive amount of people in this country, massive internal displacement, and wars fought in neighboring countries that destabilized not just those countries, but the entire region. And we must always connect those things and say, would that be a price worth paying to go back to what we remember as the idyllic past? 
And that's both for white and black South Africans, because white South Africans must remember that they ended up servicing the apartheid um, war machinery by sending their sons to fight in the wars. Black South Africans must remember the numbers of disappeared and murdered people for whom we're still trying to account. Um, and, you know, sort of this, this idea that there was just this, the verges were green, the cities worked, public transport worked. We must ask for whom did it work and at what price? And while we must fix the present, we shouldn't return to the past because to repeat, and again, another statement is the, the people who forget history are likely to repeat its mistakes. And again, we don't want to repeat the mistakes of apartheid a third time because first is tragedy, um, then is farce. And we're now at the point where we're mistake, making those mistakes as pantomime where we're turning ourselves into actual moral clowns precisely because we seem to have forgotten just exactly what the texture of history was and remember only the larger patterns that we wish to um, take out of it. You made the point we're not unique. So has this happened in other countries where, and I need to sort of choose my words carefully, people believe what happened during a period of oppression is better than their present when on every objective measure their present must be better than the period of oppression. Are there other examples? Absolutely. So, and sometimes it's not even better at the level of measuring it. Well, you know, is, it's, is the 50 gram, um, whatever it is, better than the 20 gram? It often becomes an issue uh, that is much more about, is it different? And in places like the former Yugoslavia, in the former East German Republic, um, what we see is that uh, what is called Yugo nostalgia, where people remember the Tito regime only for its positive. And precisely because of the Yugoslavian civil war, its violence and violations, they remember Yugoslavia as having um, peace, um, no repression, uh, a certain kind of value, a certain kind of linguistic um, shall we say, peace between the, the, the different languages and the, the people who spoke them. Um, and the better critics, so people like the, um, the late uh, Dubravka Ugrisic, who was very critical and said she remembers this very fondly, but she also remembers why she remembers it fondly, because of what happened in the 1990s in Yugoslavia. In East Germany, immediately after the reunification of Germany, many, many people who were in positive positions of power in the former East German state misremembered East Germany as just a place of full employment, just a place of maternity benefits, um, uh, etc. They, you know, deleted often from their retelling of what happened, the Stasi, um, the killings, the, the inability to leave the country. And, and, and so that post-communist nostalgia um, is a feature of parts of Eastern European politics, and we've seen what has happened as a consequence of that. Many people swinging their political choices to the right, edging closer and closer to ethno-nationalism, nationalism and fascism. And, and in South Africa, I think we have the tendency to misremember and to think that we're unique, that there are other people in the world who have experienced horrific episodes in their social and political lives, of their polities, of their countries, who also have to overcome the, the horror that they went through was as bad as it was, even if the present is as imperfect as our present is. Because what it can do is it can paralyze us and prevent us from addressing what are the consequences, as your opening question indicated, what are the consequences of choices made during the period of freedom after the horror that we need to address? 
Well, this comes to my next point. So I mentioned certain politicians who've compared our present to apartheid. They blame our present on apartheid. They've been in power for nearly 30 years. And yet I would absolutely accept that you could not overcome our racialized inequality in just 30 years in a free society, maybe in an unfree society you could. What are the politicians really doing when they make these claims? It's the uses and abuses of history. And I think your next guest, uh, Professor Niftahuddin, is going to be able to talk about this in greater detail. But politicians use mismemory, sometimes even their own mismemory, to foreground their own agenda, which is to get power, to get to maintain power, to get access to power, not because they want the power itself, but because of the resources that it gives them access to. And some of those resources will be the ability to tell the story of our own history. And the African National Congress and its politicians and many other people in South Africa will continuously say 30 years has not been enough to undo apartheid. But 30 years has been enough to undo so many aspects of racialized apartheid and its incarnation that they also failed to do. So some very obvious things that they didn't do was to improve the integration of the spatial dynamics of our towns and cities. And they did that principally through failure in housing delivery. They did that also through the failure to institute a proper, very critical education system um, so that if the literacy issues for the majority of South Africans in apartheid were designed to be as low as they were with the institution of DET and Bantu education in the 1950s, it is the failure of the post-apartheid state's education implementation and sometimes even policy that resulted in the literacy failures that we've seen over the last decade. And you said, you know, we also had mistakes in the post-apartheid period. I think at some point in future, when somebody writes the history of our society, they will not be as kind to say those were mistakes. They will say this was deliberate policy by people who wanted to maintain power. And here I'm thinking of the Palestinian critic Edward Said, who said the problem with not having a literate population is that that population is then at the mercy of the people who wield power and the information that those people can put out about the society we live in, and that that is a horrible picture. And in South Africa, we've seen that, where politicians make statements, they arrive at scenes, they don't claim the responsibility for what had happened because of their policy or their implementation failure. They blame everybody else. They blame NGOs for abiding by the law and suggesting that they must follow the law that they implemented. They say, well, 30 years haven't been enough for us to undo apartheid. And that covers over the fact that they then don't have to account for what they didn't do in the 30 years that they've had power, because they've not also been a party or they've not been a government that has had a small majority. They've had a serious majority in many legislatures. And it's precisely under those majorities that we've seen sliding away from service delivery. The people of Majakaning who didn't have water aren't going to blame apartheid. They have to blame the people who mismanaged their municipal resources for the last 20 to 30 years. Because to go back more than 30 years is to say, well, you couldn't have built anything in 30 years. And that, I think, is part of the tragedy here. That our politicians are telling stories that are in their interest and wish to speak over people's experiences and wish to only affirm people's mismemories and not affirm their actual current experiences and say, we did something wrong, we need to fix this. And this, I think, is something that Andre Brunk, as a critic in the 90s, pointed out, is one of the things that the post-apartheid powerful inherited from the apartheid powerful, this unwillingness to say sorry, this unwillingness to say we made mistakes, the unwillingness to admit that things that they were expected to do 
they didn't do. And that, I think, is part of the tragedy here about the mismemory of history. It is to cover over our own sins and to pretend that we didn't do the things actively that we did, which is not provide textbooks, not provide ARVs, not provide infrastructure in hospitals, not keep the railway system going and fix and extend it from where it was in 1994. It seems, Angelo, that our politicians like to argue about our history, but there isn't really a message about the future. What does that tell us about our politicians? that they have very, very short-term gains in mind, that the rest of us are on this planet and we think of our children and our children's children. We are thinking in terms of one to two generations ahead of us. Politicians have their eye on the next election and that's as far as their planning goes. And the tragedy is that in the crises we are facing, we cannot afford short-term thinking. We have to have long-term planning. And that's why I think it is important for citizens to listen to politicians and even listen to people like me and begin to think, does this advance, does this help me understand what future I am bequeathing to my children and their children? Because I want that to be better than the present I was bequeathed by people who came before me. So therefore, it is not just important to understand the history, but to understand the present as the making of history for a future generation. And if you think of yourself as merely a custodian of this time in life for other people who have to come after you, your planning has to be longer than the next five years or even towards next year's election. Because if you have children, if you have people you care for, elderly people who are going to live into 2050, your gaze has to be what kind of society do they, do you want them to live in? Or if you're very selfish, you think, what kind of society do I want to live in 20 years from now? Because politicians are only planning for the next two, three, five years. Angelo Fick, thank you. Director of Research at the All Socioeconomic Research Institute. In a moment, Professor Nur Niftachadin on what we remember and what we forget. Mediated Conversation on SAFM. Continuing your mediated conversation around what we remember and what we forget and about apartheid. Professor Nur Niftachadin is the NRF South African Research Chair in Local Histories, Present Realities and Head of the History Workshop at Wits University. Professor, good morning. Thank you for your time. Uh, thanks. Good morning, Sebrin, and thanks for the opportunity. What does all of this tell us about our memory and about how we understand history? Let me put it another way. Why do we appear to misunderstand our history so often? Well, well, Stephen, let me just start off by saying that I concur with uh, much uh, of what Angelo said earlier, uh, in particular, uh, that the present shapes our understanding of the past. It shapes our memory. Um, And I think that it's important also uh, to keep in mind uh, that often people don't make conscious decisions about what they remember. Um, And we need to distinguish between uh, individual memory and collective memory. Um, And there are many things that uh, affect the way that individuals remember. And it could be age, it could be illness, it could be individual trauma. Uh, And then there's a production of collective memory. And of course, uh, many social processes uh, impact on how memory, collective memory is uh, produced, uh, politics, economics, the state of our society, all of these things impact and power, those who have power play a, a, a fundamental role in the way that collective memories are produced. And this can happen through media, can happen through education, in textbooks and so forth. Uh, So it's important to keep those differences in mind, even though they, of course, are intimately connected. So 
Memory is not fixed. Memory changes all the time. Memory is subject to all sorts of uh, influences. Uh, and in turn, uh, history is contested. Um, the facts and interpretations of uh, history are continuously subject to debate, to new research and new contestations. And you've just heard it over the past weekend and uh, on your show this morning about how people, different people, have remembered uh, Butelezi. There are those who, including the uh, governing ANC, who have uh, tried to portray uh, Butelezi as his elder statesman. Uh, and then there have been people who have remembered him as a bloody warlord in the, from the 1970s through to the 1990s. So uh, memory is contested. Uh, and I think that we've got to live with that uh, and understand that uh, that memory will uh, will always be to sub will always be subject to change. The question is the interesting question. I think is why does memory change? Right, um, and I think it's important to uh, you know focus for the purposes of our conversation here uh, on collective memory. And I think it's been really interesting the point that you've made about why uh, do some black people call into your show um, and apparently fondly remember apartheid. And I would say that there are probably two overarching issues at stake here. The first is that this is principally about uh, mobilizing a sharp rebuke, a sharp critique of the current state of our society. Can you imagine a greater insult to a black government than to say that a racist white minority regime a system that subjected black people to all sorts of indignity was a better place than the current. I can't imagine a greater insult, and it's almost an appeal by many people to shake the current government to understand the deep unhappiness that exists in the present. And I think this is really what is at stake here. Uh, and of course, people will then, in that process, try and justify uh, you know, why they're making that point. And as Angelo said, people may refer to some kind of, uh, you know, idyllic past of what, uh, how things, you know, look like in the Johannesburg CBD, uh, in the townships and so on. Uh, and for me, all of these things are, are very interesting because they allow us to open up the space for further debate and further contestation about our understanding of the past. There's so much in all of this, Professor, from, from what you've said and from what Angela Fick said. Um, is there a... So if we want to better understand our history, where do we start? Do we need to know that history is being made by the present, even though it's about the past? Do we need to understand the point of view of the person who's claiming the history? How do we find a better way to understand our history? And our history is big, and I, I'm so tired of using the word complex because that can mean lots of different yeah. things, but our history is complex, and, and you have such different viewpoints. Yeah, I, I, uh, let me just say I agree completely with you that the word complex is overused and complex is not an answer. Complex is uh, principally an invitation to do harder work, to do more research, more thinking, more debate. Uh, secondly, uh, I think that one has to be cautious about trying to uh, uh, reach a point of a, uh, of a right view of history. History will always be contested. Um, and we shouldn't be afraid of... Uh, of making that argument and rather than trying and, and, and I 
can understand why people want to do this. People want to simplify things. They want to hold on to a past that makes sense, that justify their own lives and justify or explains in their own terms where we are now. Uh, but we do need to make it more complex. We do need to ask more questions. So there isn't a, a, a singular answer to your question. I would say, in fact, that what we need to do is to open it up more, to have more debates, more discussions. And the callers to your show, whether one agrees with them or not, uh, are providing inputs uh, into this public debate. And I would suggest that part of the challenge that we have is that over the last 30 years, and again, South Africa is not unique in the sense, right? But in the last 30 years, the production of a, uh, of a dominant narrative uh, which has principally been about, uh, you know, the injustices of apartheid and overcoming uh, the apartheid system. That's been an important uh, part of our history, but that has dominated the uh, public history landscape. And we don't want to move away from that, but we want to open uh, the space for further public engagement. And I would say that what we need to try and achieve is to get more people, more communities, more organizations, more individuals, families, uh, social movements, churches, mosques, and so on, to do their own histories. Because part of the problem we have is that our view of history has been so narrow and it's been principally about party politics. And therefore, we know very little, or rather too little, about the kind of the, our, our very rich history, our, our multi-layered history. And that is what we need to do. The public engagement with history has been one of the fundamental problems that we've had because it has narrowed the production of history. Too much of the history, and this is what I do, of course, uh, is produced only by historians at universities. And there are other people involved in it, but too few people. When one compares our situation with what exists in other parts of the world, where thousands of people in small communities are producing their own histories. And that creates a, the opportunity for better engagement with the past, more nuanced engagement with the past. Professor, we've got a minute and a half, and it's unfair to mm. ask you this question uh, that's coming with just that, but I feel I must. I think for most South Africans, young South Africans, your first contact with history might come when, you, when, when as a child you ask, what was apartheid? And I think that's a tough question for all parents. I know it's a hard question for a white parent. I'm sure it's a hard question for a black, for a black parent. When our child says, what was apartheid? How do we start that answer? Um, uh, we start by very deliberately, uh, depending on the age of the of the child, uh, making it uh, uh, making it complex, making it uh, something that can't be reduced to a single word answer. But we very importantly, we we cannot hide the harsh truths of apartheid, of the indignities, the racial segregation, the violence, and so on. We mustn't run away from that. We mustn't try to sugarcoat the history. We must open up. And secondly, is to allow our children to engage critically with that past and not try and get them to understand that very deep and complex history in very narrow terms. Apartheid was fundamentally a system of racial oppression and subjugation, but it affected every aspect of people's lives. And often we don't focus on those other aspects of people's lives. And we need to bring that into focus in order to have a much richer, deeper understanding of apartheid. 
Professor, I really appreciate the time. Thank you. Professor Nur Niftakhadin is the NRF South African Research Chair in Local Histories, Present Realities, and Head of the History Workshop at WIT. Starting us off today, Angelo Fick, Director of Research at the OWL Socioeconomic Research Institute. It's one of those mediated conversations where I'm actually going to go and download the podcast myself to listen to it again, and it will be available in a few minutes. Uh, I've really enjoyed being with you today. Uh, I think there are going to be big debates around what uh, happened in the legacy of Prince Mangasuta Butelezi, but also the story may move to the public protector in the National Assembly today. From Mdoop, Stanza, Zoma, myself, look after yourself. Kathy is next. You with SFM leading the conversation nine o'clock.